0: A taste of Cuba at the presidential inauguration today, Monday, January 21st. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. A more subdued inauguration this time. We get a foreign perspective and hear about the first Cuban-American inaugural poet. And later, India's national debate over sexual violence sparks groundbreaking conversations.
1: I had this very challenging conversation with some of my family members who were like, why are Indian men violent? You know, and I'm like, men are violent everywhere. It's not Indian men. It's not unique. We are all
2: parts of this system.
0: Plus, China's censors take aim at the latest Bond movie, but no matter.
2: Anyone who really wants to see the original film can just go down to their local pirated DVD shop and you can pick it up for $1.50.
3: PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World.
4: With common effort!
5: and common purpose, with passion and dedication, let us answer the call of history and carry into an uncertain future that precious light of freedom.
0: A line from President Obama's second inaugural speech delivered today, as per tradition, from the west front of the U.S. Capitol. Hundreds of thousands gathered on the National Mall to hear it. Big as it was, this crowd was much smaller than the one that witnessed Obama's first inauguration four years ago. The smaller numbers match decreased expectations for a second Obama term. Gary Young of the British newspaper The Guardian is in Washington. He feels several factors contribute to a subdued atmosphere on this inauguration day.
6: In the words of Sade, it's never as good as the first time. (laughs) There's a sense in which all inaugurations are historic, but this was the first black president. The second term is always like a renewal of vows, which is never quite as exciting as the uh, first wedding. But there is a symbolic resonance of it taking place on Martin Luther King Day, which is only the second time that's happened. Uh, 50th anniversary of the I Have a Dream speech and the march on Washington. 150th anniversary of the emancipation. So anyone who knows their history knows the symbolic importance of this occasion, but it doesn't have the historic resonance that it did.
0: There are other reasons, too, certainly why this inauguration feels different from four years ago. I mean, the the country has changed a lot.
6: Well, there was a sense in 2009 of the country and possibly even the world being in a kind of economic freefall, and there was no sense or saying of where it was going to stop. And that sense of it being in free fall has gone. And therefore, the weight of expectation that there was on Obama to solve this mess, which I think was intimately wrapped up with the historic nature of it. There was this sense of him being, some people talked about it as the super Negro, that he was going to come in and save the day. And the expectations of him, partly the kind of rhetorical force with which Obama had stood as a candidate in the first term, his evoking of the civil rights movement, the suffragettes movement, gave this sense of a kind of radical departure. And this time, the fact that America might elect a black president is now a banal, almost a banal fact of life. It can still be astonishing if you stop and think about it, but you will have to stop and think about it. And
0: you as a Brit, I mean, when you look on this debate and, you know, what does it all mean? How does it strike you?
6: I find it intriguing. I'm uh, not just a Brit, but a a, a black Brit. When people ask me, well, could this happen in in Britain? I generally say, well, the thing about America is, uh, compared to Britain, black people can travel further, both up and down. Hmm. There are more black men in prison than there were as slaves in 1861. So there's the good and the bad. But there is this one other thing that I find intriguing as someone who's not American, which is this this celebration that the inauguration is of the trappings of democracy. America doesn't really do pageantry. You know, there's no carts or horses or 18th century garb as we we would have in in Britain. But there is this kind of um, level of civic engagement that you don't see elsewhere.
0: You know, I was in London to gather opinions of U.S. leadership in the presidency uh, prior to the November election and was surprised how cynical Europeans had become uh, about Barack Obama. I'd have thought that at least the broad stroke narrative of uh, President Obama would have continued to glow there, but many had a tarnished view. I I remember hearing from people abroad when uh, Bush 43 was president that their feelings about him didn't affect their view and respect of the American people. Has that changed, do you think?
6: Well, it has. There was this unfounded expectation that Obama's election would signal not just a radical departure, and I think it has been a significant departure from the Bush era, but a radical reconstruction, reformation of American foreign policy. And that hasn't happened. So to almost any comment about Obama, the symbolic resonance and all that, people say, yeah, drones, Hmm. drones, Pakistan, Guantanamo, there are these touchstones abroad that make people think, well, it's great that he won. I don't think, according to the polls, there was any country with except possible exception of Israel that wanted Romney to win. And so there is a satisfaction that Obama won, and he is still popular abroad. But American foreign policy is more popular than it was under Bush and still pretty unpopular.
0: Gary Young, a columnist for the British newspaper The Guardian, he's in Washington for the inauguration. One major foreign policy issue that faces President Obama today, as it did four years ago, is the war in Afghanistan. Some might say not much has changed. Early in his first term in 2009, the president tried to turn the conflict around by ordering a troop surge into Afghanistan. Stanley McChrystal was a general in charge then, appointed by President Obama himself. McChrystal had to resign in 2010 after a magazine profile of him was published in which his staff was quoted mocking senior administration officials. McChrystal now has a memoir out called My Share of the Task. He says the surge changed everything.
4: It actually did quite a lot. If you look at the summer of 2009, the sense of foreboding, imminent collapse, the idea that the Taliban had momentum and that they essentially owned areas like the Helmand River Valley, they don't anymore. And the idea that there is rising violence has been reversed. There's dropping violence. The Afghan army's got a long way to go, as does the Afghan police, but they've come an awfully long way. And the Taliban's, they are not a national liberation front coming to rescue the people from a government. In fact, they are feared by the Afghan people as a negative thing. So what the Afghans have got to do is stand up and take responsibility for their security and their sovereignty. They can do it. They have to do it.
0: Recently, you did a Q&A with The New York Times. And when the reporter asked you if you had any regrets about Afghanistan, you said you wish you could start again on September 12, 2001 and send tens of thousands of people to language school. Explain what you mean.
4: Absolutely. As well-intended as American actions and interventions are, we tend to do those things which are easiest for us, most conventional, which we think will work the most quickly. And really, what we need, in my view, what we need to do in areas like Afghanistan is develop a cadre of people who actually understand the area, who speak the language, who understand the culture, who build long-term relationships. We can always send a number of troops somewhere, but they will always be hampered by not understanding the area. And also there are antibodies that are produced when large American forces go. Almost by definition, we wander around with less precision and less care than we would if we understood the area. So I think that America needs to increase its cultural acuity dramatically. Uh, If you
0: could go back and change one thing regarding uh, your time in Afghanistan uh, or undo something or do something differently, what would it be?
4: Well, I believe that the strategy of counterinsurgency, again, we're going back to 2009. Hmm. I assume that's what you mean. We had no choice but to increase our focus on counterinsurgency and increased forces because the situation had gotten to where it was. I'm very comfortable with that. I would have continued to push much harder on relationships in the region. Relationships between uh, myself and leaders in Afghanistan and Pakistan made progress, But at the end of the day, I found that connection with the Afghan people and the leaders to be actually the highest payoff activity that we could do.
0: And if you had one piece of advice for uh, the White House as they head off into the next four years and uh, obviously focusing heavily on Afghanistan in the next two years, what would it be?
4: Yeah, I think uh, I've given a lot on Afghanistan in terms of trying to understand a complex problem and, and think of it that way. The big thing I'd say is we're at a point now where we're not going to be able to to solve problems from the two ends of the political spectrum. We're going to have to solve them from the center. And I'm hoping that both parties will move toward the center
0: and, and fix them that way. We just can't afford nothing. Retired U.S. Army General Stanley McChrystal, thank you very much. My pleasure. McChrystal was a top commander in Afghanistan from 2009 to 2010. His memoir is called My Share of the Task. As Washington prepared this weekend for all the inaugural festivities, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton ruffled some feathers in China. Clinton made some remarks on the ongoing island dispute between China and Japan. Her words did not go down well in Beijing, where officials accused Washington of siding with the Japanese. The islands are known as Jiao Yu in China and Senkaku in Japan. We called the world's Mary Kay Magsad in Beijing for an update. I asked her first how today's inauguration is playing, if at all, in China.
2: It's getting light coverage. Um, you know, basically, I think from the Chinese perspective, this is a continuation of the Obama presidency. So they don't see this as a, another big starting point. But when it comes to the Jiao Yu Senkaku conflict or, or tensions. The Chinese were very upset with Hillary Clinton's comments. Basically what she had said is, we the United States don't have any particular view that we're going to state on who has sovereignty over the islands, but they are under Japanese administration and we don't want to see anyone act to undermine Japan's right to administer these islands. Now, there was quite an outcry here. It was basically seen as the US moving away from a more neutral position to one where it was siding with Japan. This seemed to be an important marker for Secretary of State Clinton to lay down, because in recent weeks and months, the Chinese military has been becoming much more aggressive in those waters. Starting in December, uh, military planes from China have started flying over the what J- Japan says is its airspace. And just today, three Chinese ships went in and out of those waters for about nine hours before leaving. I think the U.S. is looking with some concern at how much tensions have been ratcheted up by these sorts of actions.
0: Well, Secretary Clinton says she's going to be stepping down in the coming weeks. What kind of challenges does this bring for President Obama and the next Secretary of State? I mean, could these little islands be the mouse that roars?
2: Possibly, but it seems that while there certainly are bellicose military types in China who are saying, you know, what we need are a few short, sharp wars to remind everyone that China is a serious rising power, a military power, as well as a political and economic power, at the bottom line, China really doesn't want or need a war. So it might be a good way to cool things down that the new Japanese. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is sending a personal letter through an envoy who's coming to Beijing tomorrow, basically calling for more dialogue and for improving relations. That would at least take it down a notch. And from there, the two sides could talk about what to do from that point on.
0: Mary Kay, before uh, I let you go, 007, where is he when you need him? Uh, (laughs) Apparently uh, Skyfall, the latest James Bond uh, installment, uh, finally opened in China this weekend. I I I know that China routinely censors foreign films, but is there anything noteworthy in what they cut from Skyfall?
2: So there was a uh, Chinese guard being shot in the head that was taken out and there's uh, a scene where someone's saying I was tortured by Chinese security forces and it was terrible. In the Chinese subtitles, it, the fact that the person was Chinese is not mentioned, but for Chinese watching the film who speaks some English, they'll get it nonetheless.
0: Have you heard uh, of any Chinese Bond fans kind of being upset that these scenes have been cut out? I suppose they'd want, you know, the more the merrier.
2: Well, keeping this all in perspective, anyone who really wants to see the original film can just go down to their local pirated DVD shop and you can pick it up for $1.50. <laughs> okay.
0: Easy solution. The world's Mary Kay Max out in Beijing. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Marco. Still to come on the program, an army hampered by an amorphous enemy and the unpredictably shifting loyalties of the local population.
3: P.S., it's not the war you're thinking of. On PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Israelis go to the polls tomorrow for a parliamentary election. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it turns out, isn't the top issue on the minds of voters. It's the economy but the conflict still receives plenty of attention globally. Take the Oscar nominations. Among the five nominees for an Academy Award in the Best Documentary category are two films on the subject. The world's Matthew Bell tells us about them.
7: One of the films, Five Broken Cameras, is very much a work of citizen journalism. It's about a Palestinian peasant, his family, and their village in the West Bank. Bil'in has been a hot spot for what Palestinians call popular resistance since about 2005. That's when Israel started building its security barrier through the area, cutting off the village from some of its land, and it's where the film begins. I it the first camera, and it was Imad Bernat is narrator, co-director, and one of the main characters in this very personal story of the conflict. Bernat shot much of the footage himself over the course of five years, beginning with the start of weekly demonstrations against Israel's fence. He went through five different cameras in the process, as each was damaged during protests. Near the beginning of the project, Bernat's son, Jibril, was born. Bernat seems to keep his camera rolling constantly, capturing some of Jibril's first words, the ongoing protests, clashes with the Israeli army and arrests of his own family members. This footage shot by Bernat was what convinced Israeli filmmaker Guy Davidi to get involved with the project in 2009. It shows an older, heavy-set Palestinian man trying to prevent Israeli soldiers from arresting someone by climbing on the hood of their jeep.
4: It
3: was a very strong image. I asked him, who's this guy? And he actually told me, well, that's my father and he's blocking the deep from taking my
4: brother to prison. And I thought, wow, what a moment. So, hey, this is worth telling.
7: Davidi joined in as co-director. He says he wants this very Palestinian story told to one audience more than any other, his fellow Israelis. The Oscar nomination changes everything for a small film like this, he tells me. And if Five Broken Cameras does manage to win an Academy Award, Davidi says he hopes the Israeli government will not be able to say no when he tries to get the film shown in Israeli high schools. The other long-form documentary about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that's up for an Oscar is called The Gatekeepers. Its creator also had the Israeli audience in mind when he got to work. But in just about every other way, these are two very different films. The Gatekeepers is much larger in scope. It covers more than four decades of the conflict. The production has a big-budget feel. And rather than hearing from ordinary citizens, the only characters speaking in this film are six former directors of Israel's intelligence service, the Shin Bet. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter.
8: And the most important thing that this message comes from the six heads of the Israeli security forces.
7: Israeli filmmaker Dror More told me it was vital for him to find the right messengers, people Israelis would take seriously and let them deliver an honest assessment of how Israel has handled its conflict with the Palestinians.
8: It doesn't come from leftists. It doesn't come from those people who are used to speak against the occupation. It comes from the heart and the center of the defense establishment in Israel, and all of them. There is no single head of Shin Bet who is not in this film.
7: Drawn from dozens of hours of interviews with modern Israel's senior-most spymasters, Moray covers a lot of ground in this film, Israel's response to both intifadas, or Palestinian uprisings, mass detentions and harsh interrogations, targeted assassinations of Palestinian militant leaders, the emergence of violent Jewish extremists, and the murder of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. In a sense, The Gatekeepers is more blatantly political than Five Broken Cameras. Moreh wants to convey a sense that Israel's political elites on the right and left have failed to deal with the conflict strategically. And he says that's been evident in the current election season in Israel.
8: Regrettably, I'm saying that. I think that the lack of leadership amongst the Israeli leaders is something that is devastating. It's the most dangerous part of this election.
7: Moreh might want Israel's occupation to end, but politicians who feel precisely the opposite— are poised to do well in this week's election. A spokesman with Israel's foreign ministry I spoke with said the Israeli government welcomes the news that these two films are in contention for an Academy Award, even if they are critical of Israeli policy. Art, by definition, is political, he said, and if it isn't critical, it's not art. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Check out the trailers for those two Oscar-nominated documentaries
0: and see interviews with the directors. That's all at theworld.org. Cheating in sports has been in the news a lot lately, especially since Lance Armstrong's televised confession in which he finally admitted to years of doping. His dishonesty casts a long shadow over cycling, even over its honest competitors, which isn't fair, of course, to all the honest athletes out there. Luckily, a story from Spain offers a more hopeful example of an athlete doing something good. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Barcelona.
9: Ivan Fernandez Anaya is a pretty big deal in Spain. He's a long distance runner who's won a bunch of regional titles, mostly in the northern Basque region, where he's from. Now he's an even bigger deal. Last month, Fernandez was running a race here in Spain, set to take second place behind a guy from Kenya named Abel Mutai. Mutai won a bronze at the London Olympics in the steeplechase competition. So Mutai has a comfortable lead a few yards before the finish line and he just stops running. Fernandez catches up, but he doesn't pass him. Fernandez told the Spanish TV crew what happened. He said, "Mutai pulled up short and started waving to the public. He thought he'd already crossed the line. As I came up, people were cheering, urging him on, but he couldn't understand them. So I grabbed him and guided him forward and across the real finish line. Mutai had apparently become confused because the last few yards of the track were a different color and the sidelines were crowded with people. Fernandez crossed second because he said the race was already won. If he'd crossed first by taking advantage of Mutai's mistake, he'd have gotten a medal, some money. Instead, his prize has been praise. This happened in early December, but the video on YouTube has made Fernandez world-famous for his good sportsmanship. His small gesture apparently struck a chord with sports fans. After listening to Lance Armstrong tell Oprah about his obsession to win at all costs, the way he turned on friends and colleagues, suing them to shut them up when they were right, Armstrong was a cheat. That story's been dominating headlines, but the good guy stuff actually happens more than you'd think, and at all levels of sports. This is from a high school track meet in West Liberty, Salem, Ohio, last year. -year 17-year-old Megan Fogle was the favorite to win. Instead, she stopped to help a stumbling rival reach the line. As a result, the two came in last and second to last. They could have been disqualified as well, but the judges let it slide. Disqualifying confessed cheats may be easy, but no one wants to punish real heroes when they come along. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon.
0: I'm Marco Werman, Ahead, why one young man volunteered to serve in the British Army during the
10: American Revolutionary War. By the time he was 15 or so, he'd had quite enough of working in the coal mines. So he went into the Army looking to better his life. He wanted a more stable profession, he wanted something that had more prestige to it.
3: PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health preparing frontline healthcare care workers who help them along the healthcare journey and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. Medtronicfoundation.org.
0: Hi, Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. In India, the trial of five men accused of gang raping and murdering a young woman in Delhi got underway today. The 23-year-old woman was brutally assaulted on board a bus last month. Her attack and death sparked outrage across India and around the world. The world's Ritu Chatterjee is in Delhi. There's been a motion to move the trial uh, out of Delhi. That often happens here in the U.S. when a case is so in the public eye and there is a sense that defendants won't get a fair trial. What's driving the proposal to move the trial out of Delhi?
11: You know, a month and a half after this incident, the public mood is still pretty hot. People are angry. People are emotional. And people want reform and people want uh, justice for this particular victim. And that's why the defense lawyers are asking for the case to be moved out of Delhi, because they feel like the alleged rapists will not get a fair trial in Delhi.
0: What's the public mood right now, and how has interest either waxed or waned in this trial?
11: I was actually expecting that most people would have gone back to their own lives and they might have forgotten or nearly forgotten about this case, but that's not the case. You know, yesterday I visited this uh, place called Jantar Mantar in Delhi, which has been the site of a lot of vigils and demonstrations. And there are still people there. There's There was a group of people doing rotational fast for asking for justice. Uh, so they're taking turns fasting. There were some people who have been fasting for several days. And, you know, there were four or five different groups of people, but all asking one justice in this case, justice for other rape victims and change and reform in laws. And, uh, you know, asking government to put in measures that would ensure justice for cases of sexual violence and measures to uh, help reduce the number of cases altogether. Now, Ritu, I
0: know you had been avidly following this terrible story uh, as it unfolded from Boston. Now you're there in Delhi. What's really struck you so far about the mood and public reaction to the case uh, so far and the upcoming trial?
11: What's really struck me is the fact that so many people, ordinary people, have been moved enough to come out and, and protest. And, you know, everybody I talk to keeps telling me that, this is still such a part of their everyday conversations. I mean, I've had friends tell me that cab drivers or auto rickshaw drivers or people in shops have brought up the topic of sexual violence And are discussing how awful this is, how we as a culture should change, how the government should should put in measures to, you know, prevent these cases from happening, to make public places safer for women. So really, for someone who's lived away for 10 and a half, 11 years, this is a huge difference.
0: Now, finally, the victim's father urged the fast-track court to deliver swift justice and sentence her attackers to hang what is the likelihood of these men receiving death sentences?
11: Death sentences are very rare, but on the other hand, I have to let you know that a lot of people I, I've i talked to, including a couple of friends of mine, are still so enraged by the incident that they do feel very strongly that these men should be hanged.
0: The world's Ritu Chatterjee speaking with us from Delhi. Ritu's blog about how this crime has changed the way people talk about sexual violence in India is at theworld.org. The debate in India has led some in the South Asian community here in the U.S. to open up about another related topic, and that is how sexual violence is sometimes exported to America. The world's Monica Campbell has that story.
1: Samina Massoud remembers certain childhood moments far too well when she was a girl in Pakistan raised by her Indian family.
12: Relatives would visit her home, and some paid too much attention to her. Even though I was part of an educated family, I had to suffer through a lot of sexual exploitation as a young child at the hands of male relatives. And it was taboo to talk about it or even acknowledge it, leave alone ask for legal or social or psychological help for it.
1: Masood eventually left Pakistan, studied abroad, and now works in San Francisco as a therapist.
12: And one of the reasons I started studying psychology to become a therapist was I never had a therapist to talk to. And when I tried to broach the subject of my sexual abuse with my family, it was such an awkward conversation and it caused so much pain and dishevel that you were taught that the best way is to just close your eyes and close your ears and not say a word and suffer through it.
1: Masood has worked for years with South Asian women facing sexual and domestic abuse, including at San Francisco's Asian Women's Shelter. The shelter is in an undisclosed location reporters aren't allowed to visit. There have been threats against the women living there. Advocates stress that women seeking shelter at Asian crisis centers like this are like women fleeing domestic violence anywhere. But they also know that South Asian immigrants face particular challenges. We're at Maitri, a non-profit in the Bay Area focused on South Asians' domestic abuse and cultural alienation. It's located in an office park. There's no sign outside, and there's a separate entrance for clients. Sonia Pelea runs Maitri. This
11: is the hotline. Absolutely, please come in.
1: Pilea says South Asian cultural norms coupled with immigration complications can leave some women feeling trapped. In a scenario common in Silicon Valley, a South Asian woman joins her husband, who already works here. She holds an H-4 or dependent visa, which means she's not allowed to get a paying job. It can be isolating.
2: When there are problems is when the challenge starts happening. When marriages fail or turn abusive...
1: Immigrant women can worry about their visas or deportation. And
2: sometimes there's the shame and stigma of a failed marriage. We would have young women call us and say, I'll kill myself here, but I won't go back. The families are being told, well, you must have done something to deserve this. You know, there must be something defective with your daughter. We find many times the, the, the violence is orchestrated long distance. And
1: abuse cuts across class lines. Pelea says it's not just poor, uneducated
2: women who face it. It happens to women who are physicians, who are um, nurses, who are engineers, who are highly educated. But I think societal pressure is the key denominator here. Matri's hotline gets thousands
1: of calls a year from immigrant women seeking help. The group assists them in finding jobs, apartments, transportation and immigration lawyers. In some cases, attorneys file Freedom of Information Act requests to recover paperwork from husbands who can hide documents. Still, Pelea says
2: things are starting to change. When we first started doing outreach, when I joined the agency 19 years ago, I could spend an entire day in a crowd of 5,000 people and not one person would come by. And, you know, it was considered that we were making much ado about stuff that should be fixed and solved within the family.
1: She says now, women come in asking about their rights. (laughs) Bells rang at a Hindu temple in the Bay Area during one of several vigils following the December gang rape in India. Preeti Shaker, a young Indian immigrant, organized the first vigil. She runs Narika, a group focused on domestic violence and South Asians. Shaker says that since the rape in India, calls to Narika's hotlines have gone up, And like many Indian Americans, she says there have been some tough conversations at home. I had this very challenging conversation with some of my family members who are like, why are Indian men violent? You know, and I'm like, men are violent everywhere. It's not Indian men. It's not unique. We are all parts of this system where we sometimes willingly or unwillingly have embraced a lot of these um, regressive notions of women. Shaker embraces discussions like this. In fact, she's working with other activists here to hold a large public discussion about gender violence in the South Asian community next month. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell, San Francisco.
0: And you can find an additional Indian American perspective on this complex story. We've posted an editorial by New America Media's Vijay Sundaram. That's at theworld.org. Let me read the opening lines from a new book by historian Don Hagist. It was one of America's longest conflicts. The government's professional army sent volunteer career soldiers accustomed to overseas deployments to fight in a land that was not well understood by many of the policymakers overseeing operations. Tactically, the army was hampered by an amorphous enemy and the unpredictably shifting loyalties of the local population. So, guess what war I'm talking about? Iraq? Afghanistan? Nope. I'm talking about the American Revolution. And the government's professional army I referred to there was the British government's army, the King's Own, better known by the colonial insurgents as Redcoats. Don Haggis is with me in the World Studios. His book is British Soldiers, American War. And you center on a collection of accounts written by a handful of British soldiers. Uh, We've heard U.S. veterans of today, Don, who have read your book and say that they can identify in some ways with these British soldiers, even though they were America's foreign enemies.
10: What parallels do you see? There are actually quite a lot of parallels, and many of them are summed up right there in the introduction. There's a tendency to look at historical wars strictly in terms of good guys and bad guys. So we lose sight of the idea that the armies are made up of individual people, and they all had lives. They had reasons for joining the army. And the British army during this period was very similar in a lot of ways to the U.S. army today in that it was an all-volunteer force, of people who joined the army as a profession. They didn't sign on for a two-year stint Mm. and then get out. They joined the army with the expectation of that being their profession for the rest of their serviceable life.
0: Kind of like West Point cadets almost without going to West Point.
10: Uh, You could argue that, yeah, except that these men are not joining to serve as officers. They have no expectation Mm. of rising through the ranks during this period when we have a caste system in society anyway. They're expecting to be in the working class. They just happened to be in the working class of the military.
0: Well, I want to get to a couple of individual stories in a moment, but I got to say, as I went through your book, I realized that my understanding of British soldiers was pretty shallow and kind of fit into maybe the stereotype. You know, we have this certain image in the popular imagination of the Redcoats as mindless automatons you you see in movies like uh, The Patriot, but that doesn't kind of fit your description in this book. What what do you base these stories on?
10: Well, these are all stories based on personal accounts, of course, and... uh, The focus of my own research is on the demographics of the British Army, what kind of people served in it. Well, tell
0: us about one of them. Who is, uh, for example, your favorite character in the book?
10: Uh, One of my favorites is Thomas Watson. He actually left one of the shortest memoirs, but fortunately there are some other documents related to his life that tied in. And we should point out there's precious little
0: evidence or memoirs of any of these uh, redcoats anymore.
10: uh, That's very true. That was another motivation for this book is with the very small number of firsthand accounts, I wanted to try to pull as many as possible together in one place. Watson, who I mentioned, was very much like other British boys and young men. Uh, He was born in Cheshire, and doing what a child would do during that time period, he went to work as soon as he was old enough to work, which is about seven years old, and he went to work in the coal mines. As you might guess, by the time he was 15 or so, he had quite enough of working in the coal mines. So he went into the army looking to better his life he wanted a more stable profession he wanted something that had more prestige to it and while he was in the army he learned how to read and write and this again goes against the conventional wisdom that the soldiers were among the the lowest people of society they were all illiterate they had no aspirations here's a person who joined the army because he did have aspirations mm.
0: One of your profiles begins with with this discussion of a soldier who uh, might have gone AWOL and just like the discipline that these guys feared. And that's another part of the myth that you kind of bust open, that the British soldiers were brutally disciplined with constant floggings. You kind of found the opposite.
10: Not exclusively the opposite, but largely the opposite. Mm. Um, this is where I like to look at these things with a large amount of data. It's certainly true that those soldiers who required brutal discipline received brutal discipline, but the majority of soldiers didn't require the brutal discipline. They enlisted voluntarily. I often use the analogy of, remember when you were in high school and there was a, some portion of the student population that was in trouble all the time, and then there was another portion of the population that was in trouble maybe once or twice throughout their mm. entire school career, But the vast majority of them had pretty clean records. Well, I got to say, your book has uh, certainly added to the body of information on the
0: subject of British soldiers. Don Haggis, author of British Soldiers, American War, Voices of the American Revolution. Thanks for coming in. Really interesting stuff.
10: Thank you very much for the opportunity of talking about it.
0: I want you now to listen briefly to a recording. It's your backgrounder for today's GeoQuiz. That's not someone knocking at the door or hammering up on the roof. In fact, it's not even human. It's a wildlife recording, one of hundreds of thousands, at Cornell's Macaulay Library in Ithaca, New York. The collection has just been digitized and put online. Pretty cool, as you'll find out in a moment. So, is this a mammal or a bird? Is it on land or underwater? It could be a part of a mating ritual, or is it an attack on prey, love or war? Anyway, try to narrow it down, identify the species, and imagine where you'd hear it. This is a toughie. We'll get the answers in just a minute. in a minute. Answers still coming up with a bit of poetry on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Sounds from one of the world's largest natural sound archives inspire our GeoQuiz today. From hoot owls to elephants, song sparrows to ostrich chicks still in the egg. That's the range of wildlife recordings in Cornell's Macaulay Library Archive. And it's now online. Greg Budney is the audio curator. So introduce us to this collection, Greg, with a single sound.
5: Hi Marco, what I'd like to play for you first is the largest of all lemurs.
0: It sounds like an orchestra
5: doing some modern composition. It's remarkable the tonal quality, how much it sounds like a trumpet. And as these lemurs vocalize, they actually flare their lips. And where were these lemurs recorded? These Indri lemurs were recorded in Madagascar, the only place on Earth where they're found. Wow, how many recordings do you have to choose from, and
0: are they all that pristine?
5: There are 195,000 recordings in the Macaulay Library. They're not always as beautiful as this, uh, but many are.
0: I gather it took uh, 12 years to digitize all the recordings you've got in the archive. Why put them online now? I mean, uh, up until now, these recordings probably were useful just to researchers. Now everybody can have them.
5: Absolutely true. Uh, These sounds are of interest to anyone who has a desire to learn more about the natural world. Certainly those who investigate the natural world, like researchers, have tremendous need for access to recordings like this. It dramatically extends their ability to detect and uh, survey rare and elusive species, many of which are quite vocal.
0: So, Greg, take us somewhere far away for today's GeoQuiz. Uh, play us a recording. I'll try to guess what it is, and uh, hopefully um, maybe where it was recorded. I'm not giving myself too much hope for that. And listeners, is it safe to play this game at home too?
5: Very good. The sound I'm going to play for you is characterized by researchers who study it as knocks and bells.
0: All right. Knocks and bells. I'm going to say a pileated woodpecker knocking away at one of those fake cell phone towers that
5: looks like a tree. That's an excellent go. Excellent first stab. Here's your second hint. It's underwater.
0: Um, okay, something underwater. A fish knocking against a submarine?
5: Another great guess, but you're not quite there. All right,
0: I'm bailing now.
5: (laughs) This is the sound of a male walrus courting females. That gong-like sound in my mind, is just absolutely spectacular. It's How, fascinating, um, yeah. Yeah. Where does it come from? That recording of walrus was made in the Arctic Ocean. So,
0: listeners, if you got Canadian Arctic or Arctic Ocean, that is the answer to the geo-quiz today. I mentioned earlier these ostrich eggs, the chicks that are still in the egg. I mean, you have recordings of these chicks coming out, is that right?
5: Right. It's going to take them probably hours to break through the shell. You can imagine that's a pretty durable shell. So they begin peeping during the process of breaking the eggshell. And that peeping serves to let everybody know, it's time, fellas.
0: If you want to hear some of these sounds, go to theworld.org. We'll link to Cornell's Macaulay Library. Greg Budney, thank you very much. My pleasure. President Obama's second inaugural ceremony today featured a poem read by Richard Blanco. It was titled, One Today.
4: One sun rose on us today, kindled over our shores, peeking over the Smokies, greeting the faces of the Great Lakes, spreading a simple truth across the Great Plains, then charging across the Rockies.
0: That's just the beginning of the six-minute poem on the theme of unity. Richard Blanco is the first openly gay poet and the first Cuban-American to compose an inaugural poem. Here's more from the world's Alex Gallifant. Blanco's friends were listening with pride today.
8: I wrote him to congratulate him a few weeks ago, and so he wrote back and he said, "Well, you know, light a candle for me, Prend una velita," you know, which is what Cubans do, you know, to wish him good luck.
13: This is Gustavo Perez Fermat. He's at Columbia University in New York. He's known Richard Blanco for many years.
8: Back in the 1990s, there was a group of young Cuban Americans who called themselves uh, Generation Eny. Sort of the Cuban-American version of the American Generation X, I guess.
13: Enye. the Spanish letter that's an N with a tilde on top.
8: And Richard was sort of the,
13: the poet of that group. In his collections of poetry so far, Blanco has, among other things, worked to capture a sense of ongoing cultural negotiation. Negotiation about his own identity. He was conceived in Cuba, born in Madrid, and raised in Miami. Blanco likes to say he was made in Cuba, assembled in Spain, and imported to the United States. It's a neat personal narrative, knowing, too, in its nod to the globalisation of, well, people. The questions are difficult. Which places and cultures weigh more in a life? He makes his home in Maine these days. Where does that fit? It's territory that's personal for Gustavo Perez Fermat, too. Unlike Blanco, he was born in Cuba and raised in Miami. He was assembled in the U.S., if you like. A few years ago, he wrote a book called Life on the Hyphen.
8: And the point of the book is that I live on the hyphen that both joins and divides Cuba from America. And that hyphen sometimes feels like it's a bridge that joins the two identities, the two nationalities, the two cultures, the two languages. Other times it feels like it's a, a barrier between the two. And I think that experience of, biculturalism as sometimes a multiplication and sometimes a division is something that one finds in, in Richard's work.
13: That idea of an American forging a distinct individual identity, negotiating a personal Americanness, that's probably familiar to President Obama. He's written books about his need to build personal narrative bridges between Kansas and Kenya, or from Hawaii to Indonesia to Chicago. The president is fond of calling his journey to the steps of the Capitol improbable. Richard Blanco said much the same to the PBS NewsHour recently.
4: When I think about my background and um, being a little Cuban kid from Miami and all
8: of a sudden, you know, being asked to sort of speak before the nation, for the nation, to the nation, I mean, it's just amazing and, and just besides myself.
13: Today, at least, the hyphen is a bridge. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant.
8: We leave
0: you now with a bit more of Richard Blanco's inaugural poem, One Today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening.
4: We head home through the gloss of rain or weight of snow or the plum blush of dusk, but always, always home, always under one sky, our sky.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, and by the PRI. By trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund.
6: P.R.I. Public Radio International.